I want to preach a message today uh, as we're finishing this series that we've been in about our DNA as a church, what I'm calling the five axioms of our identity. And I want to talk to you about being people for the world. So let's go through it one more time, church. Last time for now. Last time for now. We, this is who we are as a church. This is what makes us free people. We are people of the word, people of the spirit, people of one another, people of the kingdom, and we are people for the world. This is who we are because this is who Jesus is. And so I want to talk to you about being people for the world. In the early 1700s, the Moravians uh, were a group of Christians that were being persecuted by the Catholic Church. Um, back in those days, persecution from Christians wasn't just a mean post on Facebook. It was like they would kill you. <laughs> yeah. We think denominationalism is, is strong now. <laughs> if we disagree back then, you might get killed for being a different type of Christian. And so they were being heavily persecuted, and a lot of them fled to this little village in Germany, which came to be called Hernhut. And there was a lot of Christians from different denominations that ended up fleeing persecution there. Um, and they lived there for several years. They started working together, just a few hundred people. And they couldn't get along as far as how they viewed faith. And the leader was a man named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And how's that for a name? And they had a pastor named John Andrew Roth. And these two were men of God. And they drew up a, a brotherly covenant. Like, we, we can agree to disagree on a lot of issues, but this is what we're going to agree on in the faith and they, they all agreed on this, and then this helped the unity in the place, and, and then they started praying together, and people started coming together over about 10 years or so in that community. And soon, uh, the spirit of unity led into them worshiping together, praying together. Again, just a small community of a few hundred people, but they were very devout Christians. They worshiped the Lord. They really were seeking Him. And on August 13th, 1727, something incredibly significant happened. They experienced a radical outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Pastor John Andrew Roth was holding the meeting that day in Hernhut, church meeting. And as he was preaching, he felt himself overwhelmed by a wonderful and irresistible power of the Lord, and he sank down into the dust with God. And with him sank down the whole assembled congregation in an ecstasy of feeling. This is written by one of their historians. In this frame of mind, they continued till midnight, engaged in prayer and singing, weeping and supplication. Count Zinzendorf wrote about it this way. The Savior permitted to come upon us a spirit of whom we had hitherto not had any experience or knowledge. Hitherto we had been the leaders and helpers. Now the Holy Spirit himself took full control of everything and everybody. Another historian from their group said it was so powerful 
that they later discovered two men who were part of the congregation who were not there that day because they were working over 20 miles away came under the same experience while they were working. It was also said to be accompanied with visions, prophecies, speaking in tongues, and healing. This is over 170 years before Azusa Street in 1906. This led them to constant prayer. They started a 24-7 prayer rotation. People would pray in shifts. This 24-7 prayer meeting lasted for over 100 years. During prayer, many of them felt led by the Holy Spirit to reach out to other people groups with the gospel, and they began sending people out to different countries even to tell them about Jesus. And this is very common for us in our day, but you have to understand these were the very first ever Protestant missionaries. First ever Protestant missionaries. And they've really been credited with starting the Protestant missionary movement. In fact, their influence really can't be understated. You might have heard of a man named John Wesley uh, who was on his way to America to, to be a missionary and he met some Moravians on the boat and there was a great storm and he was terrified for his life and they weren't. They had great peace. And he was so convicted by their faith that he felt that he didn't have faith at all. And so Upon going back to England, John Wesley prayed that the Lord might save him, that he could be reborn, and he was. This was a man who considered himself a Christian at the time even. Once back in England, John Wesley and a man named George Whitfield began meeting with some of the Moravians in what they called a night watch prayer meeting. And during these meetings, they fell under a significant baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is significant because you might understand that John Wesley and George Whitfield later came to America and were instrumental in America's Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening, in which hundreds of thousands of people in America came to faith and whole new movements of faith were started. And so I'm just giving you, I'm just painting a picture for you of the influence of what was in the 1700s. A, an assembled congregation of a few hundred people known as the Moravians. And I say all that to say this. In 1732, two young Moravian missionaries, Johann Dober and David Nitschmann, felt compelled to reach the African slaves in the West Indies. And they were told that they would not be allowed to go with some of the ships to go there and they so felt compelled to reach these people that these two men sold themselves into slavery in order to board a slave ship so that they could sail halfway across the world in order to share the gospel with the people in slavery there and it's documented that as they were boarding the ship, they called out to their loved ones whom they knew they would probably never see again. May the lamb that was slain receive the full reward of his suffering. In order to reach people with the gospel, these men, 
sold themselves into slavery to reach slaves. Takes on a whole new meaning of what the Apostle Paul said when he said, I've become all things to all people. (laughs) And I have a simple question for us today. What would compel these missionaries to do such a thing? What would compel them to do this? I think it's the same thing that compelled our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to leave heaven, the throne room, where every week when we worship, that's where we want to (laughs) be, singing holy, 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 experiencing perfection in paradise, the riches of heaven. As Paul said, he left his riches for our sake, became poor. He left all of that. To be born in a dark, lonely stable to poor parents, live as a refugee, later as a homeless, wandering preacher, dedicating his entire life to make God known on the earth, which led him all the way to a rugged Roman cross. And I think the same thing that compelled him is what compelled these Moravian missionaries. And it's summed up in the most famous verse in scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. It, it doesn't say God so loved just the Jewish people. It doesn't say that God so loved us white Americans, English speakers. It doesn't say God so loved Christians. God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves the entire world. God loves everybody. Everybody that's ever existed was God's idea. Before the world was created, God knew you exist, and it was his purpose to make you exist. He knit you together in your mother's womb in love. He created you in love. He dreamed you up. Your God's dream was skin on every person on the earth. Every person on the earth is God's dream. God loves them deeply. See, when the scriptures say the world... There's two different meanings for the world. Because 1 John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. He's not talking about people. He's talking about the world system. He's talking about the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's what John is talking. He's like, don't love that stuff. When John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he's talking about people. God so loves every single person on earth. All people. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved 
and come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 says, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance through Jesus Christ our Lord. And think about the implications of this. God is not willing. What's that mean? What's God's will for every person on earth? God's not willing. God does not desire that any person should perish. What about predestination? Are some people created for condemnation? Well, Paul says, what if God rose up some people like Pharaoh? What if? But Paul, what if? What about all these other verses that say God desires every single person on the planet who's ever been born to come to him and to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved? That's God's will. That's God's desire. That's the truth. There's another scripture that says God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. When someone lives a wicked life, when someone lives in sin, they don't accept Jesus Christ and they die and they're going to spend eternity apart from God in hell. God does not delight in that. I've used this example many times, but let's make it real for us. When America was celebrating and cheering when Osama bin Laden was, was killed. Oh, we got him. Yeah. God was not cheering. God was grieving. Do you understand? God executes justice. Herod did not give glory to God and he fell down and died. That's God's justice. But God's not cheering over that. He's grieving over a man who resisted him his whole life. God grieves. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. You have to understand God's heart. This is God's heart. God loves everyone. God loves the world. He loves all people. He wants everyone to be saved. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They started this movement in an upper room where there was prayer and worship. But when the Holy Spirit fell, what's the first thing that they did? Preach the gospel so people can be saved, so people can know. And if God loves all people, then that means if we worship him and we love him, if we love God, we're going to love what he loves. If we don't love what God loves, then we don't love God. And so if we love what God loves, we will love people. And if we truly love people, that will motivate us to tell people about Jesus Christ. For Christ's love compels us, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. We'll be compelled to share faith. I remember right after I'd come back to Christ in my young college days, I was so full of God, and and, and it wasn't, it was just like it was so plain to me 
It was like, this is the truth. This is how life is. This is reality. And I just thought about eternity all the time. And I remember I was so consumed by God that I would get into conversations with people I just met and my brain would just start thinking, how can I turn this conversation about God or church or religion? How can I bring it up? How can we get there? So that I can ask questions. So that when they ask me questions, I can port them to faith. So maybe I can invite them to church. Maybe I can tell them my story. I don't know. I don't know what God has in store. But that's, that's what I thought about. And I want you to know it wasn't because I went to an evangelism training and I studied the five-point Roman road and I was just trying to get my numbers up of getting people saved. No, it's, I was consumed by God. Eternity is real. It's all I could think about. And so if this is a person Jesus loves, if they don't go to church, oh, you go to church anywhere? Oh, you don't. That's a real good indicator you don't know Jesus. So, oh boy, I've got some work to do here. I'm a witness. How can I be a witness And how can I not be an annoying witness that shuts them down? But how can I bring this up in a natural way? Because Jesus loves every person. And think about two-thirds of the people you meet in in this area. In this area, two-thirds of your friends and family don't know Christ, approximately, according to statistically speaking. Only about 30% of people say they go to church in this region. And that's a very good indicator. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian, but that's a very good indicator they don't know Jesus. Two-thirds, two out of every three people you meet out there don't know him. And so Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and, the wor- and, and across the ends of the earth, to the, to the whole world. But it starts in our Jerusalem. This is our, Mount Orb is our Jerusalem. I know it doesn't look like Jerusalem. But this is our Jerusalem. It starts here. I like the way that uh, Converge, which is a a group of churches, that's an organization that helps start and strengthen churches that we're a part of. And they say it this way, that we're called to reach people across the street and across the world. And sometimes as Christians, it's like, I want to go off to Africa, and I want to do these exotic mission trips, and that's really awesome. But are we reaching the person across the street? Because that's where it starts. Because God loves that person, even if he's a rich, white guy with an awesome job. God loves him and wants him saved as much as the poor child in Africa that doesn't have enough to eat. And we should care equally about both. And the scripture says, therefore, as you have opportunity, do good to all people. So looking for opportunities to share faith with every body. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, in the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Why did Jesus want the gospel preached as a testimony to all nations? I believe according to Re- Revelation 7, 9, it's because he wants, every, he wants people saved from an, all nations to be in heaven. Revelation nine seven nine says, After this I looked, John says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That means not only will the gospel be preached in all tribes and nations, before the end comes, people will be saved in every tribe and every language and every nation 
before Jesus comes. Which means if like, if you have any racism in you, if, if you don't like people that just, if you're not from America or from, some of y'all don't like people from Ohio, okay? And I know every time, you know, around Thanksgiving, that game comes around and you don't like those northerners very much. And I get that. But if you have any hint of racism, if you don't like people that don't speak English, you're not going to like heaven very much. (laughs) I don't know that we'll be singing English in our worship songs in heaven. It wasn't the first language. Hebrew was God's first language they came up with. Maybe it'll be Hebrew. Maybe it'll be an angelic language. I don't know. But heaven's going to have people from every nation, every tribe, every language, because God created it all. It was all his idea. There's beauty in everyone. There's beauty in every culture. And God wants all people to be saved. God loves the poor. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. God loves the poor. He wants us to care for them. God loves the rich. Mark 10.21, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And Jesus gives him a hard teaching, doesn't he? And it says he walked away sad. But Mark 10, 21 says, Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. God loves the poor. God loves the rich. God loves his people, the church. (laughs) God loves those who aren't his people yet. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? God loves people who aren't his people. God loves the old, God loves the young, God loves men, women, boys and girls, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. God loves those who don't love him back. God loves his enemies. Luke 6, 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So, have I made my point? God loves everybody. We cannot say we love God if we don't love people. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'll say it this way. We cannot say we love God if our hearts do not break for those who don't know him yet and will therefore therefore spend eternity apart from him. Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, the multitudes, he had compassion on them, and they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion is actually, I think, a poor translation. The better translation is he was moved with compassion. His compassion moved him. And the word compassion here in the Greek, we're going to learn a Greek word here today, and it's a really good one. It's splachnizomai. 
splachnizomai. And when you go to Blue Letter Bible and you click on the Greek word and you, you hit the sound it out for me button, that's how it sounds. It's one of those words that sounds like you got something caught in your throat and you got to get it out while you're saying it. You guys want to practice? Say it with me. Splach needs a mind. That's pretty good. We're not going to do it again. I don't want you to get something on your neighbor in front of you, so we're just going to stop there. Splach needs a mind. I don't want to spit on you either, so. Splach needs a mind is the strongest word in Greek for pity or sympathy. In our culture today, we might say it's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. It's when you hear about someone whose family's in an accident, they lose all their kids in this accident. You ever heard a story like that? All their kids die. Or someone whose spouse dies, and, and you're just, you hear about it, someone you love, and you're just like, oh, it's gut-wrenching. Jesus was gut-wrenched. He was gutted when he saw these people. That is is how he felt. It wasn't like, oh, he, he had compassion on him. All right, I don't feel like doing this, but I, I'll help you, I guess. I'm showing you some pity today. It was not that. It was, oh, all oh, these people, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, I, I'm gutted when I think about their, their condition. My heart is absolutely breaking. That is what Jesus experienced. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were moved, not to tears in a worship service because of God's presence? That's about you. When's the last time you were moved, Splock needs of my heart wrench, heartbroken to the point that you had to do something about it because that's the heart of God you ever read Genesis 6 and been very disturbed when it says God was grieved and regretted making mankind And he had to bring justice on the earth. Or else the Savior would not be able to come. He had to preserve holy seed. So he brought justice. But do you know what I think he was thinking about? Splach needs of mine. I think he was thinking about, I am going to do something. I am going, I'm moved. I can't not do something. The Savior is coming. The Savior is coming. Happened again in Matthew 14, 14. Different account. Different account. It says when Jesus landed again, he was trying to get away from the crowds because John the Baptist, his friend and cousin, had been beheaded and he wanted to get away. He wanted to be alone. And people found out where he was going and they showed up first and there's a huge crowd and he lands and he's like, he's not annoyed He's not like, guys, leave me alone. He, it says he looks at them, and again, same exact phrase. Splock needs am I. He was gut-wrenched. In a moment when he's hurting, when he needs some healing, some comfort, 
he's gut-wrenched over the spiritual state of these people. And he's moved with compassion. I believe this is what happened to Nehemiah when he was a cupbearer for the king in Persia. Nehemiah chapter 1. And I believe this is Spock Nehemiah's how Nehemiah went from being a cupbearer to a city governor. <laughs> Imagine that. You go from food taster to governor. <laughs> Why? Because you want political position, you want influence, you want people to know your name. No, because of Spock needs of mine. Because the world's broken and somebody's got to do something about it. Because his heart was absolutely broken. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4, it says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was at the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So this is post the Jewish captivity. He's living in Susa with the Persian king serving him as a cupbearer, which he would taste the wine, make sure nobody poisoned it. How would you like that job? And then he would, you know, serve the king as his drink and his wine every day. But he's a Jewish man. And so he asked his brother, How's, how are our people doing over in Jerusalem with the remnant that's been sent back? And verse 3, it says, They said to me, those who survived the exile are, are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In verse 4, he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, for many days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He heard about the state of the Jewish people not doing good. He was absolutely gut-wrenched, heartbroken. He sat down and he just wept for several days. And he prayed. And if you read his prayer, which is in the next few verses, his prayer ends with, in light of the fact I'm so heartbroken, Lord, give me favor in the eyes of this man. And he's talking about the king. And what he does is he talks to the king about the state of the people. And the king goes, what do you want to do? And he says, I want to go and I want to help them. And the king gives him favor, gives him all the resources he needs, and sends him and makes him the governor of Jerusalem so that he can do something about it. But he had in mind to ask the king for help before the king asked him, what's wrong? This can only be sadness of the heart. His heart broke over people that he loved. Spock needs a mind. And it moved him to do something. I'm going to ask the king for help. And it's not, his ask was not like, oh, great king of Persia, would you send a lot of money and send somebody else to go help? No, his prayer was, here am I, send me. If you will empower me, if you will give me permission, I will go. And I will do something about this. He was moved with compassion. 
I remember many years ago after I got out of college and I was attending the church I grew up in back in this area and my heart was breaking because a whole lot of people that I grew up going to high school with and church with growing up were not going to church anymore. And I was inviting them to my church, and nobody wanted to go to my church. And I just felt like there was a whole lot of religion in the way, and we needed to make it more simple, and I was feeling compelled, but I didn't know what to do. And I remember sitting in a church service, and I was listening to the sermon, and I began to pray about revival in this area. And I wrote this note in, you know, one of the little bulletins you put in your stuff in your Bible. Some of y'all got those from like 30 years ago because we don't do those. You don't have them from free people. But some of you got this from like 30 years ago. You know what I'm talking about. You know, the things you draw pictures on while the guy's talking. When you're a kid, I know you don't do that now, but that's why we don't give them to you. You got to pay, got to pay attention. <laughs> but I had one of those, I pulled it out. And it was a space for sermon notes, but I started writing a prayer. I don't know why I wrote it. But it was something like this. I said, God, the people in this area are so amazing. The Christians I know. And God, I just feel like we could do so much more for you. If we could just come together. If we could do something new. If we could see revival. But God, we need somebody to lead it. We need somebody to unite us. God, would you please raise up a leader? God, would you please raise up someone to do something new in this area, a new work for you that would bring people to faith? And I wrote this note, and I put it in my Bible. And you have to understand that I never wanted to be a pastor. I never wanted to preach. I like to play music. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I put this in my Bible, and I forgot about it. And eventually, God called me to ministry, and it was worship ministry. And we moved to Michigan, and we were there for five years. And I was a worship pastor. And while we were there, the Lord eventually called me to start a church. And I knew we were supposed to do it back in this area eventually. And after several years of waiting on the Lord and praying and preparing, we moved to start this church. Almost 10 years ago now. And it was after we moved back. We were beginning the process of starting this church. And I was keeping a prayer journal. There was one day I was going through my Bible. I was looking at these old bulletins. And I found that prayer. And I realized... I prayed this heartfelt, authentic prayer for people in this area. And I said, God, would you please do something? Would you please raise up someone to do this? And he's like, okay. And he called me. And he didn't let me know that's what he was doing. It was a lot longer process than Nehemiah's process. But if we're going to pray the prayers, we have to be willing to have the actions that back.
them up. That's a dangerous prayer. Oh, God, please help those people in Haiti. Oh, help them, Lord. Help them. That's a dangerous prayer. He might be like, all right, you help them. You ever been praying about a need or about someone or, God, why don't you do something? God, why don't you fix something? Why don't you? And I feel like sometimes God's like, I I did do something. I made you. And I'm waiting on you to take a step of faith and you do something. And then I'll help you. I'll I'll, I'll blow on that. (laughs) I'll give you some favor. I'll put the wind in the sails. I'll give you provision. But God works through co-laboring. It's a co-laboring. It's a partnership. God works through people. And I believe every Christian on the earth, if we're going to pray the prayers, which we should be, we have to be willing to do the actions that line up with the prayers. Because, I'll say it this way. If our faith does not move us to be outward focused and help people in need and help people who do not know Jesus with the gospel, then it's dead faith. It's not even real faith. It's a counterfeit where we use God to make us feel good and that's it. Now, how can I say it that strongly? Because James, the brother of Jesus, said it that strongly in the letter he wrote to the church. James 2, 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? What type of deeds is he talking about? And he gives us an example. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James responds, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And down in verse 26, he sums it up and says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So if we're loving God and if we're following Jesus, Jesus will lead us to help others and to tell others about God's love, to share our faith. Think about this for a minute. Look at, the, think, look at the missionary journeys of Paul. And look at what Paul did. Time and time again, he would go into city after city where he's never been. He would go to the Jewish synagogue because that's, he knew that that's where he needed to start very often. And then he would boldly preach about Jesus. What's astounding about that is this is not walking into a modern church where you know if you boldly preach about Jesus, most people are going to agree with you and clap for you and be like, amen, brother, and feel real good and make you feel real good. 
these Jewish synagogues, he knew time and again when he walks in, he's going to boldly preach. And it's, it's very likely that a lot of these people are going to want to either kill him or put him in prison. So <laughs> that right there, think about that. That right there is aggressive, relentless, all-consuming, pursuing love for people you know are probably going to reject you and hate you. Can you imagine that? I mean, we get all we get all knotted up inside if the Lord kind of whispers to us about inviting a coworker to church. Oh boy, oh, they're gonna think I'm weird. They're gonna think I'm awkward. Are they gonna want to kill you? Well, no. Imagine in your workplace, you walked in there, and the Lord's like, "Tell everybody at the Waller Cooler about Jesus. Just tell them the gospel right now," and you know. Like, they're going to, like, stone you to death. Drag you outside and stone you to death. But you're supposed to do that. Now, it would take a miracle. Maybe somebody gets converted. They lower you through a basket out the office window, and you can get, you can get away. And, of course, you didn't give your two ways because sayonara. All right. I'm out. Now, doesn't that seem ludicrous for us to think about? Because it's America. Did you know those types of things are happening in Pakistan and other countries where it's predominantly Islam, religious Islam government, and if you preach boldly about Jesus, mob justice will drag you outside and stone you to death, and then the authorities, oh, oh, we don't really know who did it. Oh, well, can't prosecute because they don't want to prosecute. That is happening across the earth. Do you realize this is what the apostles did? Like after Pentecost, they kind of get in trouble and, and they heal a guy. And because they healed the guy, they couldn't do anything. So they slap him on the wrist. And then the next morning, the Lord's like, hey, go back to the temple courts where the Pharisees are. You know, the ones that just kind of slapped you on the wrist. Preach boldly to them again, time and again. Tell them about Jesus. And you look at Peter's sermon, he's like, this Jesus whom you killed. It's like, he does not back down. Were, were the apostles being rebellious against authorities? No, do you know what that was? It was aggressive love. Aggressive love. Because God loved the Pharisee and they were wrong. And in their pride, they killed Jesus. And now they're trying to kill his disciples. And he's like, get up, Peter. Go back in there. I'm not trying to start a war. I love those guys. And I'm trying to break down their walls so they will finally accept Christ. And some of them are believing, like Nicodemus. And when they see you boldly, an uneducated man, a fisherman, they will see your courage. They will take note. The only difference here is not his schooling. It's not his intellectualism. He knows he's right. It's that he's been with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. They're saying he rose from the dead. The rumor is they stole the body. Why would he be risking his life unless he rose from the dead? 
And so that's when Nicodemus starts going, oh, maybe I can have some courage. Maybe if I get kicked out of the synagogue, it's not as big a deal as I think it is. If this fisherman is willing to risk his life, what are we willing to risk, church? What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to do? And let's forget about the world for a minute. Let's just think about Mount Orm. Let's just think about Southern Ohio. The normal interactions with people. How much are we risking if we're a little bold? How much does it really cost us? But I think the root of our problem is not boldness, courage, trying to muster it up. It's really not insecurity. Oh, you know what the root of our problem is? Splock needs a mind. For the last few years, when I go to pray and really spend time in prayer, somewhere in there, I'm going to be weeping. I'm just going to be weeping. And it happens a lot during worship. And uh, it's, it's a Holy Spirit thing. And the Lord showed me a few years ago. He said, he's given me a spirit of travail. <laughs> And I remember when that was happening, and I, in my brain, I'd be like, and I would literally pray this while I'm weeping. Why are we weeping, Lord? Because <laughs> I'd be like, I'm not sad. I'm not struggling. My life's not hard right now. Somebody didn't just send me a hurtful email. I'm good. To, like, like when I walked in church today, I was good. I was happy. I remember this one church service. I mean, it's a great day. I was in a good mood. Life was good. We get into worship. I'm like, oh, preach a sermon. I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I got very emotional. As soon as it was over, I walked down front. I knelt down right there. And I just, boom, I'm just weeping, weeping, weeping. And like somebody was wanting to talk to me, and they walk up, and they're like, oh, I guess I'll wait till he's done, you know? <laughs> they're just like sitting there. And my wife was sitting there, and I overheard them say to my wife, is he okay? She's like, oh, yeah, he's fine. He's just, like, praying, so he's good. He's fine. <laughs> and sometimes it's gratitude. Sometimes I weep over gratitude to the Lord. But more often than not, I'm like, it's over and over the same thing. Why are we weeping? Because there's multitudes that don't know multitudes and it's like I got saved 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 when I was 20 I'm turning 40 real soon 20 years I've been in the kingdom 20 years guaranteed heaven 20 years the full riches of the kingdom full riches in Christ I'm so blessed 20 years I don't fear death I don't fear it 20 years, he comes back, trumpet call, the world's hiding in the ground, terrified, mountains, please fall on us, because he's coming with fire in his eyes, and I know I'm not going to be with him. 20 years, I'm like, he's coming back, I lift up my head, let's go. 
that's me. And then I meet people every day that I'm sitting there looking at them like, they don't know. They don't know. He comes back, they're crawling in a hole in the ground and say, mountains, please fall on us. That's what scripture says. Because it'll be so terrifying. They don't know. It's pretty darn selfish of me to just be a happy-go-lucky Christian and, 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 and use God to get me a parking space at Kroger. And that's like, oh, he's just blessing me all the time. It's all, hey, God, can you give? Oh, there it is. Pff, you're awesome, Lord. But I never think about helping those other people know Jesus. Moment I got saved, saved, saved at 20, why did he leave me on the planet? To do something about it. It's not about me. It's not so he can give me parking spaces or increase my finances. Or That's not why I'm still on the planet. We're on the planet to help other people know. I heard someone say one time, the church is the only organization that exists for people who aren't yet a part of it. Every other organization, every other club, every other membership, oh, if you're a member, you get all these special benefits. It's like, cool, we want to take care of you. It's for the insiders. You come into the kingdom, you come into the family, it's like, Jesus is like, hey, good to see you. Flips you around, it's like, all right, sending you out. I just got here. Yeah. Come back next week. You're going back out. <laughs> Resurrection day. Resurrection day. He walks into the room. He says, peace be with you. I'm sending you out as the father sent me. Resurrection day. They're like, Jesus, you're alive. We should worship. We should have a service. No, I'm sending you out right now. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to need that. All right. But I'm sending you out. Get ready. Day one, first thing he says, get ready because I'm sending you out. Why? All-consuming, passionate, relentless, aggressive love. And some people you preach love to, they will want to kill you. Preach it anyway. Love them anyway. Pour the kindness on them anyway. You've probably heard this story at some point of Jim Elliott, who is a famous Christian missionary to an isolated tribe in Ecuador. They'd never, they lived along the Amazon. They'd never had human contact before. And of course, he hears this story at some point and he goes, they don't know. Going to hell unless they know. And so he decides he wants to reach them. He had a pilot fly them over. They made a landing spot a few miles away from their tribe. They tried dropping gifts to soften them up and let them know, like, we're friendly. And uh, they made contact at one point, had a good, a good initial contact. And then, I think it was within a few days, a few weeks, these men from this tribe were so afraid. They didn't understand who these people were. They didn't understand airplanes. They, they had dropped photographs. They thought these, they'd never seen one before. They thought it was evil spirits. 
they didn't get it. So these ten warriors come into their camp with spears and immediately, like no conversation, just walk up and just kill them, kill all of them. And Jim Elliott was the first one. Is walk up and they just spear him to death, just kill him. Eventually, his wife, after she buries her husband, feels compelled to forgive these men, forgive this tribe, and still try to reach them. And so she actually goes. She makes contact with them in person. She lets them know, those men you killed, one of them was my husband. And she eventually tells them, I forgive you. And through that act of forgiveness, they've they've never experienced anything like that before. She tells them the gospel. Here's why I can forgive you. Because God became a man, his name is Jesus, and he forgave me. And he wants to forgive you. And he wants you to know him. And eventually a few of these men accept Christ. Eventually she keeps going to the tribe. She lives there for a time. And eventually, most of this tribe comes to faith in Jesus Christ. I heard someone say one time that Paul was welcomed into heaven by some of the people that he helped martyr. Then they said this, that's how the gospel works. (laughs) Jim Elliott would welcome some of those tribe members into heaven. And I bet he would do it gladly because that's how the gospel works. Jesus said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. It's John 9, verse 5. But then in Matthew 5, 14, he said, you are the light of the world. To his disciples, a town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are the light of the world. Jesus said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But we are his body. So we represent him. We carry his light. So people for the world... (laughs) are those who consistently, aggressively, relentlessly do good works and share the good news of Jesus to help people know him. So there's two categories there. We do good works to help people in need, especially helping people in need. And we we help them in the name of Jesus. We're generous. We do good works. We bless people. We help the needy, we help the poor, we help those in trouble. We do it in the name of Jesus, but we do it no strings attached. 
It's not like, well, if you get saved, we'll help you. Well, if you become a part of our church, we'll help. No, we just help you. We just bless you. We help you freely because that's how God helps you. And we eventually, some, at some point, let them know why we're doing this. But that's it. They have a decision to make, right? We just want to represent him. But then we also preach and proclaim. And we tell people the good news to give them an opportunity to know him. And so as a church family through the years, we've done lots and lots of things to try to help people in need and try to spread the good news of Jesus. When we spread the good news of Jesus, we want to show it and we want to say it, both. When we show it, we're just demonstrating the goodness of God through our acts and our good works. And when we say it, we're, people have to hear the explicit gospel to be saved. And so it's a both and. And so through the years, I mean, we've, we, we've drilled water wells in Uganda, Africa. Um, we built a boarding school for over 200 orphans in Uganda, Africa. We sponsored hundreds of children through Compassion International. We started a new Compassion Center in Guatemala in 2022. Uh, we've supported several international missionaries through the years and partnered with them in different countries. We've helped start three different churches regionally, one in Cincinnati and two in Kentucky. Uh, we partnered with Converge Mid-Atlantic um, to help start dozens of churches regionally um, in Ohio and other states uh, that are kind of bordering us. And we give to them annually, and 80% of what we give to them goes directly to, to starting new churches. Um, we've always helped people locally through our local benevolence, which we designate a significant per, or a, a percentage of our giving to just local benevolence, meaning when people are in need, I can't pay my bills, I'm homeless, you know, you name it. Uh, if they come to us, we have a financial assistance form, we have them fill it out, we meet with them, we work with them. And, and honestly, we, we try to meet the root of the need, um, and then we meet financial needs as we're able. We've always done that as well. And, and I could go on and on about countless local service projects, food drives, coat drives, Christmas gift drives, all the things we've done year to year, um, and we will always keep on doing. Why? Because it's not just about having a church service. It is about helping people. It is about showing the love of Jesus the way that Jesus did. And of course, <laughs> we've always maintained an evangelical focused and evangelistic focused and I was looking at our numbers or just thinking about it this past week and over the past I believe it's five years or so four or five years might actually be six somewhere four to six years somewhere in there I'll say five years we've averaged averaged a baptism a week for about the past five years Why is that? Because we preach the gospel often. Because like today, we didn't even get to the sermon. We worship. It's like somebody in here needs Jesus. And we get a few people up here to preach the gospel and give an opportunity. Again and again and again and again and again, week after week. Because people need to hear the gospel. Because we want to see people get saved. And so I love that we're a spirit-filled church. I love the Holy Spirit. I love gifts of the Spirit. I love the heart of worship. 
Yes, I love worship. Let's all sit here. We can sit here for an hour or two and just, whoo, Jesus, you're awesome. Yes, absolutely. But we can't just do that. We have to stay outward focused. We have to preach the gospel so that people can know him. So because God is for the world, we are for the world. We're for the world. We're for the world. What about Israel? What about the war? <laughs> Let me tell you something about Israel. We are for Israel. It's their land. Like, if you're a Christian believe the Bible, it's just no dispute. It's their land, okay? That's that. But many Israelites today don't know Jesus. So we pray for them to come to know Jesus. What do you hate Palestine? What do you what about Hamas? Let me tell you what we think about Hamas. They don't know Jesus. So we pray for Hamas to come to know Jesus. I remember us praying in a prayer meeting for Hamas and the terrorist organizations to have visions of Christ and and supernatural things to just wake them up and show them Christ and the truth because they're so indoctrinated in a false God ideology that causes terrorism and all the other things. But we love them. We pray for that. I remember praying for that one week. This was several months ago, praying for that. And the next week, I heard a news report from a Christian outlet that over 200 Muslim extremists had a vision of Jesus at one time. And, of course, came to faith. And I'm like, that was us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to send it in and make sure they know that was us. <laughs> There's lots of Christians praying about that, so that wasn't just us. But that bowl filled up, yeah. and Lord's like, tip that over, Gabriel. <laughs> I don't know if Gabriel's the bowl tipper. I'm just saying. <laughs> He's probably not. He's busy running around down here. <laughs> but that's awesome. What do we want from Hamas? Do we want a bomb dropped on them and then wiped off the planet? No. We want them to come to know Jesus. That's what we want. What about the Palestinians? We love them. It's not their land, okay? But we love them, and we want them to come to know Jesus. That's what we think. We're for the world. We're for every nation. Do we believe that we hope there's justice on the earth because if they don't believe in Jesus, terrorist organizations, should they be stopped? Yes. God's a God of justice. Nations don't bear the sword for nothing. This is in his word. It's common sense too. But even if justice is executed and they get arrested and all the things, we want them to know Jesus. So we'll go into the prisons where they are and we'll share Jesus with them. We don't go, oh, good thing you're in prison. Good riddance. I never want to see you again. I hope you burn in hell. A Christian should never say, I hope you burn in hell. Even if it was to your enemy or to your abuser. If you've been abused, if you've been harmed, and if you still feel, I hope you burn in hell, Jesus wants to heal the wound in you. He wants to heal you. And then he wants to give you his heart for that person. 
because there's probably a reason why they got to the point that they're willing to abuse someone. And maybe they got some issues too. And maybe we can have compassion. And the Lord wants to give you his heart for people. And he wants you to be able to forgive them with his forgiveness. That's God's heart. That's who God is. We are for the world. Because God is for the world. Because he so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus was so moved with compassion, so gut-wrenched, that he was willing to go to the cross. That when he knew his best friend was betraying him, there was something more heartbreaking to him than that. So he's willing to endure it. When he was sweating blood in Gethsemane, because of his own suffering, there was something more gut-wrenching and heartbreaking for, for him than that. So he was willing to go through it. When they put a crown of thorns on his head, when they pulled out his beard, when they spit on him, when they blindfolded him and they beat him and said, prophesy, who hit you? Heartbreaking. But there was something more gut-wrenching for him than that. So he was willing to endure it. And when they nailed him to the cross, horrific, as he was suffocating to death on that cross, unbearable pain, there was something more gut-wrenching for him than that. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he stayed up there. Why? So you and I could come to know him. Spock needs a mind. Because he wants you with him in eternity. And so I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you've sinned. The very people that murdered him, he said, Father, forgive them. I want them too. And one of them, when he died, he saw how he died. The Roman centurion. Surely this was the son of God. Statement of faith. Saved. When he saw how he died. So I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you're religious or non-religious. I don't care if this is your first time in church. Jesus Christ loves you. He is the son of God. He died for you on a cross. He rose again from the dead, proving he is God in the flesh and he has authority to forgive sins in the great hope that you will choose to receive his forgiveness so he can be with you forever because he loves you because that is the love of God. Let's pray. God, I just pray right now for any person in this room that doesn't know you yet or maybe has been resisting your pursuit and your love. And I pray you break down the walls and I pray that you would bring them to a place right now, Jesus, 
where they open up their heart to faith and accept you as Lord and Savior. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. Um, Lord, I just ask that you would give gifts today to your church. And I ask for two gifts today to be imparted by your Holy Spirit. And uh, the first gift that I ask that you would impart on this whole church is a spirit of travail. from broken hearts a spirit of supplication and prayer where we intercede for those who don't know you yet Jesus because it starts with intercession it starts with prayer and the second gift that I would ask for Jesus that you would impart to us today is block needs of mine is your heart I ask for gut-wrenching, heartbreaking faith today, God, to be poured out in this place. Your heart of compassion, your heart of love that cannot stand the thought of people dying without knowing you. A compassion and love that moves us to do something, that moves us to help that moves us to be generous, that moves us to share faith, that moves us to invite, that moves us to share our story, that moves us to tell people about you, that moves us to say, you know what, can I just pray for you right now? And I don't care what you think. And I don't think if you're, I don't care if you think I'm going to be crazy because I pray. I don't care. Can I pray for you right now? Because I know somebody who can help. And whether you believe in him or not, I know him. And I pray that we will see miracles, God, this year, this year. We will see miracles in this place. We will see miracles. I ask for miracles in every school and business establishment in this area. I ask for miracles in Kroger and the Mexican restaurant and the fast food places and the insurance place. I ask for miracles Because your people, not because we want to do miracles. Not because we're doing a treasure hunt. We're like, give us clues and there's a blue shirt. We got to do this. We got to, okay, I'm just going to go out and practice my spiritual gift. No, because we're just going about our day and we meet people in need and we see their need and we're moved with compassion. And as your spirit moves us, we go, can I just pray for you right now? And as we pray from that place of deep, fatherly compassion of love, the love of God, we see your spirit move and do miracles to help people in Jesus' name. I ask for that, Jesus. God, I pray as we have opportunity, we would do good to all people, especially those of the family believers, that we would start across the street, we would start in our Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that we could spread the fragrance of Jesus around this area. That they would see our good deeds and praise you. That people would come to faith because, oh my goodness, there's this church. They're so giving. They're so loving. They gave me food or they gave me a coat or they gave me 
money to help me with my bills. And, and I, I didn't realize people could be that way. This makes me feel like God's real because people just don't do that. And I pray that they would come to know you, that they would give thanks to you and praise your name, Jesus, because of how we're showing your love and how we're sharing about your love. So I ask for all these things, God. And I pray, God, I thank you for the spirit of worship. I thank you for communion with you. I thank you that we're going after it. Like when we get together, we're not embarrassed of worship. We're not embarrassed of loving on you when you're in the room. (laughs) I love that. I thank you for that. But God, I pray that we would always be a church that's outward focused and that those times of communion lead into times of sending out where we help people come to know you. And Lord, I pray as we do that, that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved. God, I I pray right now in the name of Jesus for partnerships regionally, but especially across the world. I pray for worldwide partnerships that you'd open doors of opportunity of people and ministries that you want us to partner with so that we can help influence nations, so that we can help people come to faith in nations across the earth. I ask for that, Jesus. I pray you would start it this year. I ask for divine appointments in the nations. And God, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would issue callings and raise up people from this church to go to unreached places in this country and to go to unreached places across the world for your glory, to share the gospel, to share Jesus. I ask for that. And I pray for a church that is so in love with you and so trusts you that we would not fear that, that when the pastor prays that, they go, oh, I hope, I hope it's not me. I like my little life. No, that we are willing. I pray for a yielded heart and a yielded spirit over this church, that we are willing to do whatever you want, King Jesus. And so we say today, here, here are we, <laughs> send us, because you're sending us anyways. Whether it's to China, whether it's to Africa, wherever, you're sending us. Whether it's across the street, whether it's to the next business that we're going to serve, the next customer, you're sending us. You're sending us. Whether it's to the family gathering at the birthday party or the holiday, you're sending us to be a witness So we say, here are we, King Jesus. Send us. Send us. Send us. And I just close with this today, God. I pray that our cry would be the same as those brave Moravian brothers. May the Lamb receive the full reward of his suffering. And may we be willing to lay our lives down to see that happen. We love you, Lord. It's in your mighty name I pray these things, Jesus. Amen.